Hey friends, we have a special episode dropped for you today. This is an incredible message with a leader that I highly respect and I've followed for some time now. His name is Erwin McManus. If you haven't heard of him, he's an author, he's a thought leader, he's a polymath, which just means that he's really intelligent in a lot of different areas, but he is shaping some of the most influential leaders out there, from billionaires to professional sports stars and coaches to people who are making change in the world. He is influencing so many of them. Through his podcast, Battle Ready and Mind Shift, and his book just released, and it's called Mind Shift. Guys, I could not put this book down. I ordered it early, and it did not disappoint. And we're going to talk about some of the shifts in your mind that you just need to get over. Maybe you feel like, I am stuck in this area. I am overwhelmed. I am overburdened. I'm overworked. Well, there's probably a stuck or broken mindset below that. And he's incredible at seeing those and at dislodging those. This is 65 years of living life, and he has had a wild and diverse life and 40 years of shaping leaders, 30 years of leading a church. He has published many books. And again, he's a guy I just listened to his voice. This interview was actually recorded live on our Effective Leader cohort. And we had an amazing chance to peek into that as a group and unpack this later on. Friends, you are not going to want to listen to this at 2x speed. Take this slowly, pull out your journals. And here is my conversation with social entrepreneur, activist, author, communicator, pastor, all things leadership, Erwin McManus. Well, friends, uh, I have been deeply impacted by this man, Erwin McManus, and we are here, first of all, to celebrate the launch of MindShift. Uh, this did not get written in a few years. This got written in many decades. Where in the world did this book come from? Well, I talk about it really in the opening um, chapter of the book that on October 26, 1990, I heard this phrase about an, a world-class athlete uh, that some people are simply structured for failure. And that statement really struck me, resonated with me, and made me do a lot of, <clears throat> sorry, a lot of personal assessment and ask the question, do I have internal structures for failure? And if there are internal structures for failure, then there are also structures for success. And I'm an internal optimist, so I decided I would spend most of my life studying how to create internal structures for success. And that's how the book really um, was germinated, how it was started. So there's so much to talk about there. And the nice thing is, guys, it's in the book, right? Like many chapters, you know, digging into that. So I won't give it away, but you've had some really hard, really painful things happen to you in your life, like almost laughable on the podcast. When you talk about them, you're, you're laughing at how stinking hard some of these experiences have been yet. Like you said, you're eternally optimistic. How, how did you do that? Yeah. The irony, Alan, is that everything I share, um, would not be the worst things. <laughs> That's only tipping the surface right there. Well, it's just because you don't really share the worst things, you know, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and, uh, um, not 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 out of like a lack of transparency just to protect people that you love and um you don't need to share everything it's just a matter of i only share enough to help people realize there's a connection 
in our experience and there are things we all have to overcome. I never share, I genuinely never share out of bitterness or um, even a sense of, of, um, of regret. I just accept that that's the journey I was on. And then you move from there. Um, but, it, and I do it just to let people know, you don't have to, you don't have to start with an advantage to finish ahead. You can, you can start with some significant disadvantages. You can start with some uh, real pain, trauma, disappointment. And, um, and then I look at my life and I go, no, I, I know people have gone through real pain. Like my wife, my wife was an orphan. She was abandoned when she was eight years old, lived as a foster child from the ages eight to 18. Uh, never heard the words, I love you one time, was basically uh, brought in as a foster child to work on a farm. As you know, um, sometimes the foster system in the past was used and create child labor. And she had real pain, you, you know? So sometimes you, you get around people who are real heroes and you go, I don't even know if my pain can hold up to being real pain, but everyone, you know, everyone goes through stuff and, and everyone, and it's funny, everyone's pain is real. Even if, you know, sometimes I'll look at someone and I go, you have not been through pain. <laughs> and I have to remind myself that for them, their pain is real and it's deep and they have to overcome it just the same way that I did mine. So perhaps that even helped that become a superpower for you. How did that disadvantage become advantage? Well, I think that's actually the case with anyone that ever rises above their trauma, their pain, um, uh, any obstacles they face is that those are the people that you can help the most. Those are the people that um, find inspiration from you, um, have a deep sense of uh, self-belief. Once you see one person break through and accomplish something, you have a deeper sense of, wait a minute, if they did it, I can do it. And uh, and so in, in, in a very real way, especially for the first few decades of my life, I thought, if I accomplish anything, it should be absolute proof to anyone <laughs> that they can accomplish something meaningful with their lives. <laughs> and you go through that in the book. I mean, you share yeah. what those are. I mean, those are not imagined. Those are real and painful, even to to listen to in your story. Um, I'm curious of all these gaps, you write about these mind shifts. Are there a few that stick out as most necessary right now in this moment? Um, well, I, I think it depends on each person, by, by the way, I, I want to say, even cause you, you highlighted the word painful and I just want to be so clear. My book isn't about pain, <laughs> you know, and uh, I think life is full of pain and life has suffering and life comes at you hard. One of the things I even like try to remind my adult kids is that, um, you know, life isn't interrupted. The interruptions are life, <laughs> you know, and and yeah. that's just a reality. But I think the 12 principles in the book, the 12 mind shifts, there isn't a priority of importance. There's a priority of relevance to where you are right now in your life. And that's one of the reasons I really like this book is that you may be at a place right now where chapter three is more important than chapter one, but you may also find yourself later where chapter one is more important than chapter three. You may find yourself in recurring transitional experiences where chapter two becomes the most important chapter. 
And, and, you know, and, and so there are different chapters, like you are your own ceiling and um, no one knows what they're doing, that if you're an entrepreneur and if you're a business person, and if you're trying to scale your company or your life, those two chapters, um, they're, they're like ticking time bombs. If you don't figure those things out, they're going to become self-destructive. So different chapters, I think, have different significance at different times in our lives. Um, for a, a lot of people who are highly talented, like when they have the curse of talent, you know, I, I was I was given the gift of no identifiable talent. And uh, so it allowed me to develop other kinds of skills and structures. But there are a lot of people I know who have the, the curse of, of high talent at an early age. And because of that, that talent did not force them into developing internal structures for success. And when you have high talent, people create external structures to make sure that they optimize your success or your talent for their benefit. And so like when you're an athlete or if you're like a musician or if you're great at math, people will actually build external structures to extricate your talent. And then when that talent is no longer needed or um, matches the, the scale of expectation, they'll walk away and then you find yourself without any internal structures for success. And so talent, the, the chapter that's called talent is a hallucinogen is I think one of the most important talents, uh, most important chapters for this generation, yes. because it's not that it's a more talented generation, but it is a generation that has a higher perception of their own talent. And because of the mythology of talent, we see people expressing greatness without hard work. So you see Tiger Woods is a great golfer. Michael Jordan was a great basketball or Tiger, or Seth Curry can hit threes. And, and so everyone kind of thinks, oh, look how easy it is because greatness always makes the hard look easy. And so we end up with this mythology that um, if I'm born with some inherent talent, it shouldn't take hard work. It shouldn't take discipline. It shouldn't take suffering or sacrifice. And so we have a generational, I, I think, um, dilemma um, around a misunderstanding of how talent actually uh, manifests itself into greatness. And so the, the the chapter on talent being a hallucinogen is a really important cultural conversation. That's good. I'll tell you the one most personal to me right now is none of us knows what we're doing. And we've said that before, but man, that's good to hear as I've just launched into a different space of this hub space, event space and co-working in addition to um, all, all that we do coaching wise and digitally and online. And I'm feeling it again, just because you knew what you were doing or started to scratch the surface of it in one area, then you head into this again. So I needed to hear that. And I'll tell you a lot of my coaching clients, there's people I interact with this whole, you don't need an audience. Can you talk a little bit about that of why we need to cultivate the greatness right now, actually before we have an audience? Uh, well, the, the, the chapter, you don't need an audience is not just important before you have an audience. It's whenever you, um, whenever you decide to scale, uh, in any capacity, scale your own influence, scale your own um, uh, impact, scale your own talent. The moment you decide to make a um, a shift in your life, to break your own ceiling, um, you're going to find yourself in the transition of aloneness. Uh, someone asked me last week in an interview, uh, is it lonely at the top? One, I'm definitely not at the top. I see a lot of summits way over me. Mm -hmm. But 
but I love the fact that some people think I'm at the top. And, but I can tell you this, um, I have more friends now than I've ever had in my entire life. Better friends, more interesting friends, more enjoyable friends. In fact, my wife gets frustrated how much time I spend with my friends because <laughs> uh, they love doing really cool things all over the world and I go do them. And um, and so I can tell you that if I'm anywhere near a top, it's not lonely up here, but it was incredibly lonely getting here. And, it, and there's a really simple reason for that is that um, when you choose a status quo, you end up with a friendship circle that affirms that status quo. And then when you try to violate that status quo and elevate, they do not celebrate you. They're not cheering you on. They're not applauding you. They may at first, because it's not real. It's the moment you break through that they are suddenly now judging you and judgmental and questioning you and wondering if you, you've, you, you here's the line, you've changed. And that line you've changed actually means you've grown. And we don't like the implications of that growth and what it says about us. And if I could just use sort of a parallel analogy, um, you know, and I'm sure none of you have this, but, you know, a lot of people have drinking buddies. And, uh, and, and then if you realize, oh, wow, I have drinking buddies, but I'm an alcoholic. This is not going to go well. I need to become sober. You will not stay sober if you keep your drinking buddies. Because if you stop drinking, they're not your buddies. And in fact, they don't want you around sober because then you're the only one who remembers all the stupid stuff they did while they were drinking. And so you will actually be pushed out of the drinking buddy circle. But more importantly, you need to pull yourself out of the drinking buddy circle if you're not going to revert back. Well, we understand that about alcohol, but we don't understand that about every other choice in our life. Some of you don't have drinking buddies. You have underachieving buddies. You have all the people who become your friends while you're underachieving, and you love each other because you're all underachieving together. You, you have your satisfied where we are buddies, and, and they group together. And if you're going to stop underachieving, you're going to lose your underachieving buddies. If you're going to stop being satisfied where you are, you're going to lose your satisfied where we are buddies. And, um, and, and frankly, that's one of the great challenges is like, even like in, in my own life going, um, I've always known that I have the capacity to create a lot of wealth. And it's always been a challenge for me because I also chose to be a pastor. And so I've always like, okay, I have to do my business stuff privately and secretly because everyone will judge me because I'm good at business. And then they go, wait a minute, wait a minute. Do you really love God? Do you really love Jesus? Are you really committed to the church if you're also like a business guy? But at the same time, people go, yeah, yeah, you, you're just a pastor for the money. And go, wait a minute, which one is it? Am I a pastor for money or am I allowed to go be a business guy and make money so that I don't have to pastor for the money? It's, it's a lose-lose proposition. It's for a lot of my life, I, I was incredibly alone uh, because I was choosing a journey that really no one else was choosing. And, and, you know, I'm 65, so my peers were all the Rick Warrens, the Bill Hybels, the Brian Houstons, and and uh, the people in my world, they would just tell me, McManus, we don't get you, <laughs> you know? And someone would just say, McManus, we were just sure you were a heretic. You know, like, I was just always an outlier. And so when that chapter, chapter two, um, you don't need the applause, is the reminder 
that every time you're going to elevate in your life, you're going to lose friends and you're not going to get celebrated. You're not going to get applause. And if you don't give up the applause, you're going to give up your future. Yes. And unfortunately, it's true. And we felt it. I so appreciate that honesty here is you're like, but I'm going to have to tell you. It's almost toward the end of the chapter. There's like, okay, what's the hard news coming here? I, I so appreciated that. And it's true. That's what I've experienced as well. Um, you work with some of the greatest minds out there, some billionaires, multimillionaires, incredibly talented people in sports. What have you learned about mindset from them? Well, one of the differences is that they have almost zero margin for error. And one of the things that has really stood out to me is, um, and ironically, you know, when, when you speak on Sunday, you're speaking to everyone, right? And, and I realized part of the reason a lot of my messages don't resonate with everyone is that a lot of people have huge margin for error because average has massive margin for error. And if you're just shooting for like an average life, you can make a ton of mistakes and there's just massive margin for error because you're, you're going to hit it. Like, you know, if you want to be ordinary, don't even try. It, it, it will just come naturally, you know. And as you elevate in any area, your margin of error gets thinner and thinner and thinner. And so the people that I tend to coach and the people I work with have almost no margin for error. And so the pressure is so intense on their lives uh, because they understand that any wrong choice or any wrong decision can have such massive implication uh, in their life. It's almost a differential where if you're um, if you play basketball in the NBA, there are 82 games. So if you lose half your games, you're still going to the playoffs probably. But if you're in the NFL, there's only 16 games. So if you lose half your games, you're out. You're like one of the worst teams in professional football. And and I don't even follow baseball as closely. I don't even know how many games baseball have. I think they must have like 10,000 games in a season. How many do they have? Do you know? Way too many. I don't know. It's, it's like so many. I don't even know how you can be a fan. And, uh, and, and, and so the more you have something, the more you're, you're comfortable with losing and the best teams in baseball and the best teams in basketball pretty much all lose a lot of games. You know, the exception is almost the Chicago Bulls with Michael Jordan. I think they had 10 losses. And 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 then, you know, the Warriors with Steph, I think there was like nine losses. But that's so rare, that becomes like a historical anomaly. Well, for most of us, we're kind of in the baseball-basketball season. We just have a lot of losses. I mean, I, was, I went to a Dodger game uh, recently. Someone invited me. And we were talking about how batting average is like 285, like – only in baseball can you get paid like tens of millions of dollars to fail 70 to 80% of the time. And uh, I go, oh my gosh, the margin there is like so astonishing because most of us uh, would bat zero. <laughs> you know, and it's only when you begin to measure it against the common scale, then you realize, oh wow, this guy's batting 285 and he's you know, worth an immense amount of money because it's so difficult that even 25% success is, is hall of fame. And, and, and part of what I do and what I see with people who are high level is that they are capable of addressing failure 
differently than most people. They fail a ton. And failure is seen as material from which they create their futures. While people who live in a more protected environment, they fail less. And, and so I know people who have never, quote, who have never failed, and they are the most boring, innocuous people I've ever known. And, and so if you're going to be top tier, you have to become incredibly comfortable with failure. And those top tier folks are wrestling through the same mind shifts. They are. Yeah. And, and that's the thing is that the, the 12 mind shifts that I focused on here are the same mind shifts when I was working with the urban poor that are the same mindsets with the most uh, elite performers in the world and the most successful people in the world. Um, and, and they're true for all of us. You know, I do a lot of mindset work as well with people, and I'm often amazed that they're wrestling with the same thing I am that I hear from from other folks. That's really encouraging to hear from me in the book. And I love the book because you're attacking the mind in a way that we, for some reason, thought wasn't spiritual enough or, or something like that. Why do you think we've pushed kind of wise thinking, mindfulness, um, and and just anything related to mindset away as not as spiritual as other stuff? Where did that come from? Well, I mean, actually, I think some of it is that um, I, I was going to say, I was going to go, I, I'm trying to be careful what I say, but uh, um, we're not Jewish enough. <laughs> you know, I mean, three quarters of the Bible is the story of the Hebrews. And we don't apply the principles in the Old Testament to our lives effectively. And what, and, and we don't tell the story like true to history. Like Joseph was the second most powerful man in a secular kingdom, empire. Like Daniel was the second most powerful man in a secular empire. Moses was educated and developed the skills of founding a nation in a secular empire. And when you begin, Esther was the second most powerful person in a secular empire. And when you begin realizing these stories are all placed in the context of what I would call the real world and Christians a lot of times call the secular world, <laughs> you know, and there isn't a secular world. There's just a real world. And, and it's the thinking patterns that, that were established in the culture that to me were so incredible. Solomon was known as the wisest man who ever lived. So clearly right thinking was important to God. And we just, but this is one of the things that drove me crazy when I became a person of faith was that we think that believing in God and believing in Jesus abdicates us from having to think clearly. But if you believe in God and love Jesus with all of your heart and you're bad with money, you're going to be poor. And no matter how much you love Jesus and pray, if you don't know how to spend money well and save money and invest money, you're going to be poor. If you love Jesus with all of your heart, but you just keep dating the wrong guy, you're never going to have a meaningful relationship. And you're going to go, God, what's going on? And, you know, I, I said, like, Jesus, he saves us from our sin, but he does not save us from our stupidity. And our stupidity is something that we have to actually address on a very, very tactile, personal level and go, I keep making the same dumb mistakes over and over and over again because I have bad thinking. And one of the things that this book to me 
um, does, and it's so important, is that it it deals with the honesty of bad thinking and good thinking, and that God's designed you a certain way, and those mental structures will transform your life. Look, if you jump out of a 10-story building and you love Jesus, you do not change the laws of gravity. You still go plummeting down to your death. And it's not that Jesus didn't love you, it's that you made a choice that had clear implications of that choice. It's the same way with our thinking. If you don't make the decision to create the right mental structures, you will never live out the life God created you to live. So good. Um, let's talk about money for a minute. I know you're talking about money more on the podcast. That's just what we have to dig out a little bit today. Uh, how are our mindsets often as people of faith broken around money? Well, I can tell you how mine's been broken so many times. It's one, um, my family was, you know, um, a family that fought. Like, you know, we, we, we didn't have a trust fund. Like there was nobody financing my mom. My mom was an immigrant and, you know, worked jobs, got her, you know, education. We went bankrupt probably three or four times. I mean, and I watched my mom fight and she was an entrepreneur and without her, we would, we would not have had food and we would have not had a roof over our heads. And so my mom is a boss and I watched her create and by working and being creative and inventive and uh, tr even traveling internationally um, to use her gifts and talents to both enjoy her life and to create wealth. But you know how some kids are rebellious. I rebelled against my family by choosing to be poor. I thought becoming a monastic would be like um, sticking it to materialism. And uh, and and then I gave my life to Jesus and I, I just absorbed Jesus into my sort of socialist anarchist worldview. And um, everything I owned was in a paper bag. And when I met my wife, I didn't even buy a bed for us because I said a bed was a luxury. Uh, not a necessity. So you have to understand, I had a very unhealthy relationship with material things. And in fact, when we were going to get married, we went to the pastor who had been influential in my life, introduced him to Kim, and he said, you're marrying the right person. And and I said, how can you know? And he goes, your, your wife comes out of poverty, and she's never owned anything in her whole life. And your loving her will actually break you out of your negative relationship to buying things because you're going to want to buy her a house one day. Wow. You're going to want to provide for her. The fact that you love her will change the way you relate to wealth. It wow. took a while. And, uh, and we, uh, for 10 years, probably I never made more than 15,000 a year. And, and it, I think it's because I, I just thought spirituality was poverty and poverty was spirituality. And one day I came home and I said to my wife, we already had like, I think two kids and Aaron was three, Mariah was like, you know, a few months old. And I said, I think God gave me permission to go create wealth. And this woman had known me for 10 years goes, what? You, you, you know how to create wealth? I said, yeah, I, I, I do. I just, I just never wanted You've to. You've been holding out on me the whole time. <laughs> you know? And, and so then I started, uh, creating my own businesses, you know, and just generating wealth. And every time I hit a, a ceiling, and it wasn't um, an external ceiling, 
whenever I became successful, I felt guilty. And, and I thought, I don't know if this is what I should do as a Christian, as a pastor. And so I would actually become my own self-limiting structure. I'd go, yeah, this is, this is as successful as I feel comfortable with. And I would destroy my success. And I did it at least three times. Or I would literally destroy my success because I felt guilty. I didn't feel like I was worthy or, um, or it was appropriate for me to be successful. Because whenever I was successful, I would get so much criticism from Christians. And all that criticism, it got inside of me. And I'd go, yeah, I should be poorer. I should have less influence. And in fact, I just finished having a conversation with Craig Rochelle and um, on his podcast. And he said, I remember when you disappeared. And it's so good to see you come back with a fury. I did disappear. I, I would become fairly well known. I would become one of the more prolific writers in America or voices in the world. And then I would disappear. I would just disappear for five years. And, and a lot of it was because I didn't feel comfortable with fame. I did not feel comfortable with success. I did not feel comfortable with wealth. And, and yet I actually have a deep conviction that if you don't create up to your God-given capacity, it's actually like evil. Because when you create, you create for other people. If you create 10 jobs, but you have the capacity to create a thousand, your lack of responsibility costs 990 people a job and a thousand families food on their table. So I have this deep conviction that if you have the capacity to create, you should create. And so I always live with this tension of, I know I have the capacity to create, and I don't think people will ever know how much I could have created that I did not create because I had a psychological um, struggle with the public experience of success. Do you regret that? Of course. I'm not an idiot. <laughs> You know, and, uh, um, but I did it with good intention and good motive. But now I'm like, I'm 65 and I've told myself, when are you going to just create everything you can create and not apologize? I mean, when I started designing clothes and I made jackets that were $10,000, people just hated on me. But like I design clothes that's actually super high end. I'm not, I'm not inspired to create Target although Target is awesome. I'm inspired to create Louis Vuitton. And, and I always have to justify it. I always have to explain it. And, and I realized that um, I don't create anything unless I'm trying to become the best in the world. That's just the way I'm designed. And when you try to be the best in the world, 99% of people will not be able to afford what you do. And, and so, you know, I'm hoping I get to live a good, uh, you know, a, a good bit longer because I'm just at the beginning. I'm just getting started. I am really, I've been innovating all my life practicing for this stage of my life. And I, yeah. and I, I just, I try to help people break away from the power of obligation to move to the a life of intention, because the sooner you do it, the more powerful your life will be. I love it. Erwin, I'm cheering you on, man. It has been incredible to just watch your intensity of stewardship, if that's what you'd call it, and the people that you're with surrounding yourself, the arena. I mean, what an incredible community you're creating. 
and, and rising at a time when so many people quit and so many people just peace out and man, I love it. I'm, I'm cheering you on and I feed off of your passion. I know you hate the question. What would you tell your 25 year old self? So I'm not going to ask you, by the way, it's in the book guys. Um, what would you tell your 61 year old self? Four well, that's, years a little, that's a little too close. Cause I think I'm still having that conversation, but I'm telling, I would, I would tell my 61 year old self finish that stupid graphic novel. And, uh, <laughs> taking you three years and it's still not out. And, um, you know, I, I would probably just dive. I, I think 61 was during the pandemic and I started a fashion company during the pandemic. And, um, you, you know, I just tell myself, just go full force. Um, mm. You know, every time you create something new, you get a new wave of criticism, just ride through the criticism and let it fuel you and just go and um, be more, unapologetic about mm. who you are and what it. you do. I love it. Erwin, I want to end by just saying thanks. Thanks that you are on the rise. Thanks that you are turning up the intensity, the stewardship, all the people you influence. We have no idea about. Um, I don't know if you remember this, but I wrote a book and I was three, I don't know, three passes through. It's called Everyone's a Genius. And I was so beat down. You probably know the, the idea of that. And I didn't think I could do the rest of it. Losing inspiration. I read the artisan soul and I went, yes, that's exactly what I needed at the time. I was able to sneak in some quotes in the book from that. And I sent you a copy. Hopefully maybe it was delivered to you on the front with a Sharpie. It said, I never would have written this without the artisan soul. Do you remember that? I do remember that. And that literally was like, just keep going, just keep writing. So I know how lonely it can be sometimes to not know that your message mattered. So it mattered to me personally. Thanks for what you do publicly. Thanks for not quitting during criticism. Um, but honestly, the way that you have shaped Aaron on the air during the Battle Ready podcast, now the Mind Shift podcast, as a father, I just want to say thanks because you are developing him, laughing with him, and modeling what my life, I hope, looks like with my boys years down the line. So we just wanted to end and on behalf of our Stay Forth community, just saying thanks, man. Keep doing what you're doing. Hey, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And um, and by the way, pick up MindShift and go to Amazon, click five stars. If you can't click five stars, don't click anything. All right. <laughs> and write a review. <laughs> Friends, seriously, amazing. I tried to get through it last night and I realized I shouldn't, but I've had it only hours. I'm loving it. Friends, this is an incredible investment. This is six decades of goodness, four decades of leadership development put into this beautiful little package. Erwin, thanks so much. Appreciate you. Keep rising and elevating. Thank you. God bless you guys. Take care.